0: Uh, so Philip uh, this week have uh, did you hear about the nuclear physicist who was uh frustrated with scams?
1: No what about him?
0: He uh, suffered from
1: confusion. Well, we've fully dried the well of Marxist <laughs> ones. And now we're just into straight uh, jokes. Um, so a little backstory for this. Uh, we're recording this on the
0: day that uh, the uh, uh, government facility announced that they um, uh, successfully uh, produced more energy out of a nuclear fission uh, experiment than it, like, than it cost to create. I think so. It made a fu- made a fusion reaction, and it they got more energy out of it than it cost to make it happen, which is a huge breakthrough. But um, more well, further background. Back in the nineteen eighties, uh, there was a group that claimed to have done this very thing, uh, but later, after uh, further analysis of their research, uh, it was found that it was bullshit. They hadn't. Uh, so it's it it's kind of like a running joke in the science community of uh, nuclear fusion is always uh ten years away or thirty years away and uh part of that is because of bad science journalism and uh science journalists report it as is we're just ten years away from fusion reactors and well we're not that's you you don't measure it like that. It's, you don't know. It's we're one step closer, but we don't know what the end like where the end point is where it actually is functional. So
1: Yeah. My understanding <laughs> of my understanding of why this is a big deal is essentially that um the getting more power out of it than you put into it is obviously like kind of the baseline need for any sort of like power source. Um, but um in particular, this is a big deal because like being able to do that at all makes it potentially worthwhile to investigate like like actually designing like some sort of power plants that utilizes this process. Right, like prior to, like assuming that like it pans out and everything, uh, like prior to that, it would be, um, worth. It will now officially be worthwhile to potentially, you know, start looking at how would you design a power plant that utilizes this because they all sort of fundamentally operate off of steam turbines or whatever. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> Just... no, hundred
0: percent, and well, and it's extremely costly and expensive. And so, yeah, we need to have, like, proof of concept to get anybody to want to invest into uh, research and development. Yeah, because, I mean, like, this one, they fired, uh, like, hundreds of lasers at an atom in order to make this happen, and it's, like, the most powerful lasers on Earth, and it's, you know, this whole immense thing to make this happen. Um, So, yeah, it's expensive, and so you want to make sure you're getting something out of it before anybody is in
1: any way interested in... That's not what this yeah. podcast is about. <laughs> no, yeah, yeah. Suffice to say, there's a whole lot of development still yet to go before we start having f- fusion power plants. But, you know, it's but cool. It's exciting, and we're nerds. Um, so uh,
0: what this podcast is about, uh, this is uh, Raise Them Left. Uh, we're a parenting podcast. We talk about uh, parenting topics from a leftic- leftist view and perspective. Um, I'm Tom McFarland, and this is uh, Philip Sype. Uh, we are both parents. Uh, I'm a stay at home parent and, uh, Philip is, uh, uh, just a regular uh, working parent. <laughs> yeah, right? yeah. Working parent. There we go. It's like, I, wait, how do I frame that? Um, uh, Philip <laughs> is more long- excuse
1: for a parent. <laughs> no, 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 no.
0: Uh, Philip <laughs> is a long time parent, a multiple parent, and I am a new parent fresh off the press. And, uh, Today, I want to talk about a topic and that is uh, very prescient, very immediate, and uh, that I'm dealing with right now a whole lot often, uh, and that is catastrophization uh, and anxiety uh, with having a child. Um, and so, right off the get-go, I want to talk about, just very briefly, I don't want to get too much into the like you know science and uh, to data-y and monologue-y, but uh, there's really... Quite a bit of medical evidence that becoming a parent changes your physiological makeup, your hormones, uh, your psychological uh, both output, and just you know your state of being. Um, for some folks, specifically folks who have anxiety, trauma, or other uh, neurodivergencies, um, this can become this can be made more pronounced. Like you know, the those neurodivergencies can become more pronounced, and also other things can develop. And uh, some things that can develop can be dysfunctional. We're going to be talking to some degree about some of that. I do want to give a bit of a content warning. I'm going to talk about um, uh, some suicidal ideations and things like that in this episode. Um, And yeah, and like psychological dysfunctions. And when I say dysfunction, I do mean that a little bit differently than like some literature. Um, Some literature kind of really looks at dysfunction as anything that Ceases you from being productive, and I think that's a bullshit capitalist-centric way of looking at things. Uh, I would say a dysfunction is anything that prevents you from uh, being happy and healthy. Like you know, as simple as that. You're happy and healthy in life if it's preventing. If you are not being able to be that because of something going on, uh, that's dysfunctional. Um. uh So then, what exactly I'm talking about with? anxiety and catastrophization. Um, it's something I'm experience, I've am i experienced a lot uh, as I've became a parent. Uh, it's often described, a catastrophization, this is, is described as an assumption that the worst will happen. I don't really find that to be the best description. Um, it's a little more nuanced than that. I mean, it is that the worst can happen. That's kind of a neurotypical way of reading it, I think. But from me, for me, it's an internalization of a conflict or a situation. So something happens, I internalize it. Uh, this is a thing, like, you know, it, but yeah, it, it's internalized to my, you know, what's going on with me. It expands into an irrational perception of outcome uh, that can often be seen even internally as irrational. Like, I can understand to be irrational, but it's going on anyway. Uh, and that can be something like, uh, the baby's crying. And uh, I internalize that into like, I need to get sleep. I am not getting any sleep. This is a problem for me now. Um, And then then it catastrophizes I am never again going to sleep. I am never going to have sleep again. And then I can even register this as irrational. Well, obviously I'm going to get sleep. It's just right now this is a problem, but it doesn't matter. I cycle into that anyways, and that just can keep spooling in my head until... Uh, anxiety builds and builds and until that can become something much worse um uh and that's when it can culminate into intrusive sometimes suicidal thoughts um like i'm never going to get sleep unless i
1: do blank um yeah i often think of this as like spiraling Mm-hmm. Is how it kind of feels to me like you just like keep spinning and spinning and spinning and like falling continuously down a rabbit hole of um you know layered assumptions about how things will go that you know does kind of a little bit have this feature of like assuming the worst or like assuming at least like a particularly bad outcome uh even if it's not like literally the worst you could imagine, you know, it's still like a bad thing you could imagine. And then building on that and building on that until you sort of like reach this, like um, you know, like life is ruined, like over, you know, really like darker type thoughts sometimes. And I've definitely been in that position um, periodically. Um, It was especially a lot worse before I was medicated, for ADHD as emotional regulation is a part of that, as we talked about in a previous episode. So like um, definitely getting a little bit better regulated emotionally just in general uh, helps me interrupt that process. You know, like you, I know, like when I've had it, like, um, you know, getting into a catastrophiz- catastrophizing mindset, like do you get in this? Uh, it, it, it almost feels like, you um, I don't know. If dissociation is the right word, but it's like you. It's almost like witnessing yourself do the thing. Like you feel it, and you know it's you, but you also feel like you're watching yourself do it, and you can't stop. Uh, like this sort of like an intrusive thought. Yeah, you have this like, but it's almost we. I I understand that's probably the correct term, but like the experience of it feels different to me than those words would suggest. Which is that like, it's like I. Or who I feel like I really am, like takes a back seat to this like version of me that's like spiraling out of control emotionally and just like watching and trying to like keep interjecting like, no, hey, look, hold on, but then like just can't get can't like rest control from the emotional spiral and it's like a little bit disturbing because you know, you can't um, that lack of control also means you can't like fully express this, what's going on. You just keep trying to like rationalize the emotion um, when you're like speaking out loud to other people or whatever. And so it, it's a rough and I've been there.
0: Yeah. And I, and for me too, I think one of the things that makes it really hard is, yeah, whenever you discuss this with somebody else in the moment, especially a lot of folks um, responses to try to rationalize to you, like, no, it's not because of this and this and this. And it's like, no, I know that that doesn't stop me from thinking this doesn't stop me from going down this route. I know that you're not helping. Um, which is, I'm, you know, and I, it's in good faith. People are trying to help, uh, but, yeah. um, but it also doesn't, for me, it does not help because it's like, I, I know it's irrational, but this is where my brain is at. Um, and for me, you know, before we even get to the, what do you do about this? Uh, one of the biggest things I could say you could do about this is to seek therapy and to seek, um, you know, s- get to, to seek health care. Um and this is something that I am at a stage at um we, we talked in some previous podcasts. In uh, molding masculinity, I was uh, at that time I was going to therapy. And now I'm in a as a stay at home parent, I'm in a break in health insurance. Um and uh not going to therapy right now, but I'm going to, to be once I'm back on health once I'm back on health insurance. Um and oh boy do I need to do that. And I've uh, really came to terms and came to identify some, uh, psychological some mental health issues that I have that I previously was, even in therapy, was in denial that I was having issues with, uh, sp- chiefly anxiety. Uh, my therapist at the time was telling me, Look, everything you write down that you've, you know, everything you've written to me of, you know, what you're experiencing and, uh, you know, the, uh, the sur- my survey answers and stuff tells me that you are experiencing astounding anxiety and i was like no i'm not i feel fine i'm not having any anxiety at all and it really took having a kid having a child first of all and then having a child who had who's has had and has uh, some medical issues and has had to spend some time in the hospital and we've had some extremely scary uh moments for me to really recognize like, Oh, well, you know, like, you know, even aside from everything else, this has given me anxiety. Now, now there's an element of PTSD uh, folded into this. Um, but also, yeah, no, there is underlying, like some of these things that I have recognized is just a normal way of being are anxiety and Oh boy, they're a problem now.
1: Yeah. Um, it's a really, really hard, just in any mental health thing at all. It like, the realization that I've come to having been through this process with a couple of mental things is like that there's no reference point uh, when it comes to mental health for basically anyone because everyone's perception of reality and everyone's mental experience is filtered through their brain. So like, there's no such thing as having an experience without a brain, but if your brain has a thing that's wrong with it, right. Right it's all your perceptions of reality are filtered through that. And so like, um. you know, there's um some really good metaphors for this, but like, essentially it's like um, if you um are going like, yeah, I just have, you know, I worry a lot about my kid, you know, it's just like really like kind of eats me up a little bit. Everyone's like, yeah, parents, you know, they worry about their kids and that's true. And you're like, yeah, I guess that is kind of the universal experience, right? Everyone worries about their kid, but like how much like, and is it, like, to a point that it's dysfunctional, like, that's hard to tell, just based on a description of the thing, because like, no one can be like, well, my anxiety is at a, you know, 4.73, and mine's at a 6.31, you know, like, there's no objective measurement, you just report, like, I feel anxious, or I feel bad, or I feel stressed, or whatever. And there's no way to really, in, you know, no easy way, I should say, to like, really figure out just kind of intuitively and through casual conversation, because people say things like, yeah, you know, I'm, I get stressed out about it too. And yeah, I struggle with that, but it gets better and stuff like that. And sometimes that's true, you know, but like, you have no ability to look at a regular, at a regular functioning experience and be like, oh, if I was exactly who I am, but without this anxiety thing, this is what it would feel like. And without that frame of reference, it gets very difficult to tell that you have a problem because the only way to describe the problem so that it's clear that it is a problem is to make it extreme enough that someone can recognize, well, yeah, that'd be out of control. But then you go like, well, mine's not out of control. So it's not a problem. But that's not true. (laughs) Like, it's not about being wildly out of control. That's the obvious example. That's like saying like, my leg's not broken because I can't see the bones sticking out. Like that doesn't mean it's not broken. It just means it's not that broken.
0: Right. And and I think one of the things for me that makes this especially for me, it makes this hard is um, a lot of this type of anxiety is I've lived with it for long enough that it is became such a part of the background noise that I only recognize the physiological signs. And so that takes some time to process. Like, I mean, one of the, one of the things has been like, you know, uh, since, uh, my son was born, I've had repeated issues with, uh, like jaw pain, like TMJ stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, it's it's cause I'm clenching and grinding my teeth constantly. Um, is anxiety. Like, yeah, that's exactly uh, what I
1: was (laughs) about to ask if you hadn't said it. It was like, are you grinding your teeth? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah.
0: And, uh, uh, you know, and there's been other, you know, other things that, you know, th- things that came up even before he was born that, you know, I'd talk to my th- uh, therapist about and he would come up and I was like, well, that's just a normal thing that people do. And she'd be like, no, no that's not, that, that's not. And I'm like, well, I've always done it. And I'm like, yeah, but that's because you have repeatedly been living through this set, like framework of circumstances that are outside of the norm and generate anxiety in people, traumatic anxiety, a lot of the times. Um, And so, yeah, like working through the underlying noise of all of that can be immensely hard. Just identifying that it's what's
1: happening and is what is going on. Um, Yeah, the only time it's ever been clear for me in any of these circumstances where, like, I had a mental problem and I, like, it became like very obvious to me, was either at um at moments where it truly got out of control. Uh, but even, but more commonly, actually, it'd be like oil, like I would kind of get convinced by someone to take a leap and and try this thing. And then I would like get on some kind of medication and then I would take it for a while. I'm like, oh, it doesn't really feel any different. I don't know. Is this really like a thing or am I just like spending this money on this medicine for nothing? I can't tell that there's any difference. And people be like, no, you seem a little bit better. And I'd be like, okay, whatever. I don't see what you see. And then I would get off of it. And then I would get the experience of what it was like before the medication. Now having a frame of reference of what it was like with, and that slow progress that had been building up and had been invisible to me, now suddenly jumped back to where it was, and then it was very obvious. And I was like, "Oh no, no, no! no. This is a problem. <laughs> I need, I need this back."
0: <laughs> yes, and and I think it's exactly these types of anxieties that, from what I've seen, from you know, from the from the um, from the literature that I've seen tends to lend itself most to episodes of catastrophization. Um, it's, uh, highly pronounced for folks who experience repeated trauma, repeated anxiety or chronic anxiety where things happen over and over and over and over. Um, so it's not just like this acute anxiety of, oh my, you know, the stress of having a new baby. Um, it's not just that. Uh, now it can be, but I mean, you know, like what, the major, like a large percentage of catast- like is- pe- folks having issues with catastrophization kind of land in this place um one of the things that kind of feed into that from some of the literature i've read is um living through repeated trauma scenarios where worst case scenarios do come true um so these can be domestic uh trauma um you know military service related trauma um really any kind of a you know any life trauma where yeah no worst case scenarios actually are something real that you learn to come to expect um and so therefore you just plug them in to every instance and again, like I think sometimes we don't recognize those as you know, we don't think in our head, okay, what's the worst thing that can happen? That's what's gonna happen. Okay, I'm plugging that in. It's just like a background feed of, you know, you're so used to waiting for the other shoe to drop that you're anticipating the shoe to drop. And uh I yeah, this is a part of this that I, you know, um I, I think sometimes, yeah, you know, uh I uh face with, you know, some things of Going through a thing and just really expecting, like, this kind of far end experience of that to take place. And when it isn't that thing, you know, it also, I think, in this end of it, sometimes it leaves you, uh, similar to what we were talking about in the last episode, you feel very unprepared with how to deal with things because the worst case scenario doesn't take place. And you're like, oh, I didn't prepare for any of this shit in the middle. Like, I prepared for the most horrific thing that could happen and nothing to happen. Didn't prepare for anything in the in-between. Um, And now this, but this can also, uh, you know, stepping back to other things that can be... Uh, lead to a more pronounced instance of catastrophization. Uh, so those are internal, really. You know, a lot of internal structures that kind of lead into this. It can also be external structures. So uh, expectations from your own parents, expectations from other parents, overzealous parenting advice. Uh, you know, the the world of parenting advice is so full of. Don't do anything like absolutely anything you do, you will find some literature out there about why that is the worst thing you could possibly do. And you're going to ruin your child's life. Um, And that can really kind of feed into this uh you know that and then from that you get back into internalized things into shame and from that shame feelings of insecurity feelings of inadequacy i feel insecure i am the worst parent ever i am a terrible parent this is going to ruin my child i have destroyed everything uh we are never going to be happy again there we go with the spiral right
1: um Yeah. yeah i i found a great deal of comfort in uh a lecture I listened to that was focused largely on advice to parents of children with ADHD. Um, uh, But one of the things that uh, he mentioned is, you know, just like, if you look at like big analyses of the literature about the influence of parents and children and how impactful, um, you know, parents are to their kids, the biggest window of influence for a parent's, And, uh, you know, whether or not like their parenting is going to make or break the difference between whether or not their kid is happy is between like zero to two or three years old. That's not a really long time. (laughs) And frankly, like all the stuff that parents really worry about constantly, like what should I teach my kid about like all these big complicated things? Like it's not like you have it's not like you stop having influence after three years old. It just continues to shrink over time as you like. As you lose you know influential power to like you know peer groups and mentors and you know that kind of stuff, which is like normal and natural and fine um, but like so it's not like those worries are like totally irrelevant either, but like people agonize over like all kinds of stuff and just don't focus on the fact that like frankly, if you can, Do your best to present your child with like calm, loving and caring environment where when they get upset, the best that is possible to do to help them feel better, be better is given to them and just have them grow up learning that like when I am when I feel bad or threatened or whatever, someone will help me and care for me and I'm can navigate the world with that assumption that there's people to support me. That's like the best thing that you can do. Like that has by far the highest impact of all parenting thing. And you do it in the first few years Um, and people and like just hearing that, like that, that was kind of the more or less like clear, you know, consensus of the data uh, when it came to that sort of thing was like very comforting because I realized that a lot of the stuff that I was, feeding shame and stuff about were like errors that i have made that i do regret doing but aren't as um like i haven't fundamentally sabotaged my kids x y or z it's one experience in a sea of them in a window that i don't even have the most influence anymore these are not things that i need to be just destroying my mental state over because that's frankly, going to make me make more of those mistakes anyway.
0: I don't know. That uh, also gives me more anxiety. I feel like I need to sprint down the stairs (laughs) right now and read my son Karl Marx uh, Das Kapital. (laughs) That won't work. (laughs) You don't have the capacity for that.
1: Most adults don't have the capacity for that one. (laughs) Okay. But you can teach your son a very visceral example of mutual aid in the fact that, you know, you don't get expect him to return something to you for all the care that you're giving him now. You know.
0: Yeah. No. No. I think that's. I think you're right, and I think it's valid. And I mean, it's one of the things that I think we've. I know we've talked about this before in other episodes, and I always feel like I'm maybe being a little shallow when I talk about it, but I. I think it's very valid and very true. It's, in remarkably simple, the power of just, being kind and loving (laughs) and how that is not something generationally has ever been a given even among folks who were like you know how am i trying to say this um just because our parents weren't specifically just because our parents weren't abusive doesn't mean they were good at providing those things. There was so many mainstream parenting concepts that have existed and still persist that run directly contrary to this, right? Like I've been told by older folks with my son, well, you need to make sure you don't hold him too much, you know, He'll get spoiled if you hold him too much. And if you coddle him too much, you need to make sure that he learns, you know, to just kind of, you know, let's just, just stop crying on his own. Yeah. Get that and, toxic masculinity in at an early age. <laughs> uh, and it's, you know, dad, uh, yeah, that's an element of it. And it's also just this element of like, fundamentally backwards, like, no, at these ages, we have a lot of data showing that the thing that children need is to be held as much as possible, is lots of coddling, lots of love, lots of care to have all of their needs met. And they are not manipulating you. They do not have the psychological, mental, or, or like they don't have the capacity to see color and identify shapes perfectly well. They are not they do not have the capacity to manipulate an adult with 30 years of life experience. <laughs> Like, uh, and uh, yeah, it seems trite to say we'll just be loving and kind, Um, but also it's the baseline thing that, yes, if you're being loving and kind, you're not going to land horribly far off the mark for being an adequate, secure parent.
1: Yeah, and I, I get frustrated with a lot of that, too when it comes to like the littlest ones uh like you can definitely like i think some people use the manipulation rhetoric as like a justifier for um things that they shouldn't need a justification for um like you know i think some people get you know they they get what you're saying and they um sort of internalize that and they go like okay i need to hold my child constantly even when i can't handle it anymore even when they're screaming even when they're thing and like not giving themselves permission to set them down and then they go like they in order to justify like the ability to that it's okay to also set them down sometimes uh because they haven't gotten that piece in their head you know or they didn't fully process the complete version of the advice and only heard the part that says hold them all the time you know we'll go Uh, oh, uh, well, they're manipulating me. Like they're just crying because they just want this and they're not like, uh, you know, like they use that as a justification for doing a thing. Uh, And the problem with that is that like that justification then has its own like uh, mutation as as it were, like as you continue to use that, like you start applying it to more and more things until you like imagine your child is this like master emotional manipulator that they aren't. It's just like the kid's, crying because it's experiencing something it doesn't like and you may or may not be able to help with that and it may or may not be reasonable to set them down at a given moment you know but like that's not because they're going like uh my mom isn't holding me as much as they want as much as i want so i know if i just make her life unpleasant enough she'll eventually have to uh and like there's none they, they don't have this like understanding of the social dynamics to manipulate in the first place like so it's it's just uh it's just a baby crying because it's upset and you know you do your best to fix that and it may or may not stop crying and you may or may not be able to hold it for some for whatever amount of time you just do what you can you set it down when you can't because if you keep trying to force yourself to do something then you're gonna make much worse errors uh and just accept that like there's no such thing as executing parenting perfectly it's okay to set your kid down if you can't handle them crying set them in a room walk away take a breather get a drink not like an alcoholic drink but like you know what i'm saying like take a minute collect yourself and go back when you're capable of handling it you know like and if and if you that's not in a functional state like where you need a crazy long break or something like that's a thing that you can address with therapy or getting diagnosed or whatever but like um it's not wrong to not to to recognize your limits or whatever. You don't have to imagine your child as some uh, cartoonish evil villain with a mustache and a top hat, like <laughs> tying you to the railroad tracks. Yeah. Yeah. No.
0: And if you start establishing that early, young, you know, you're going to, that's just going to get worse as they get older. And as they like, as a teen, become actively resistant, and you know, and it is a much more feels like much more of an active, intentional thing. It's going to be much easier for you to not let that brush off and for you to internalize that. Of, well, they said they hate me and they never want to see me again, and um you know, they meant that and they're a terrible person and da-da-da-da-da-da because you've built that up from the time they were born. um, You know, the entire time somebody is a child, you need to take understanding and reference that they are not this evil manipulative force operating against you. They are a child with a child's perception of the world. Um, and so going from there into, you know, and into the, you know, more young childhood, how to address... When you find yourself catastrophizing, when you find yourself spiraling into this stuff, I think the most imp- one of the most important things for me and that we've been really hitting on here is addressing the insecurity uh, and anxiety that is and you know, that is existent in this. So you know self-assurance, reinforcement of self-esteem learning to believe and trust in your own abilities and your own competency, competencies and seeking that reinforcement out from a close, networks of, a close network of friends and a support group, right? Have a support team, have people who support you. And when we say support you, we don't just mean making meals and making formula bottles. It's also this kind of stuff, you know, hey, I need somebody to just tell me I'm doing a good fucking job, that I'm doing the thing I'm supposed to be doing. And, and also that I'm going to trust them when they say that because they would also tell me if I wasn't. Um, so, and, in, 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 uh, you know, hand in hand with that comes, uh, and, and I, I lead with that because we live in a society where healthcare is not universal. Um, so it's not accessible to everyone and it is not out there for everyone. Um, but if it is out there for you, if it is accessible to you, um, access, therapy, medication, and support. Like for a lot of this, like I can't really give great advice on how to overcome anxiety, which is like mine, the core of all of this catastrophization I have is anxiety. I'm really recognizing that now. I don't have good answers for how to deal with that because honestly, answer number one comes from medication for me. Um, Now it doesn't for everybody, but I know for me, I'm quickly recognizing, okay, no, I need, there's some core things going on here. I need to get medicated for then therapy and other stuff to be able to work and deal with some of this. Um, so seek that out as best you can.
1: Um, and I, I would say like also a thing that you can do is just like, be aware of this is a thing that can, you can do like catastrophization is a thing, like have that as a model in your head and be mindful of how you feel, which is hard. It takes practice, like there are techniques and meditations and stuff like that, that can help you be more mindful, but just like being more self-aware of your own state, Uh, like that kind of like metacognitive awareness can really help you interrupt some of these things. Like um, uh, I won't go into the rabbit hole of this, but like uh, a subset or sub feature of some versions of ADHD is a thing called rejection sensitivity disorder, where uh, people like the perception that someone might, someone has, or even might reject you uh, causes this like big, painful, uh, anxiety in you. Um, and it has to do with a lot of like environmental and like stuff that has to do with all of that. I won't get into it. So I to say, this is a feature that people have. And as a thing that I struggle with. And when I didn't know about this, like I just felt these really bad emotions sometimes, especially around that, you know, things were, I was getting criticized or, um, I thought people perceived me as bad in some way. Uh, And I didn't really understand them and I just would catastrophize. But once I learned about rejection sensitivity disorder, just knowing that was the thing, I could start to feel this way and be like, wait, I think, I think this is rejection sensitivity disorder happening to me. I don't, I'm not going to try to like rationalize it away fully here. I'm just going to like recognize that's how probably why I feel this kind of way that I kind of recognize is maybe out of proportion and just like be like, okay, I feel this way. It's okay. It will go away. it will take some amount of time, but it will go away, and then I will be fine and when I am fine, we can look back and revisit and determine whether or not there is a rationality there that I should be concerned about. But right now is a bad time to do that because I will not arrive at a good conclusion. I just need to accept that I feel this way and wait for it to pass because all you could do a hundred percent i
0: I have issues with sensory input um uh likely, uh, autism, but that is another thing that I need to seek, um, diagnosis for. Um, but this has been something that I've not realized until relatively recently. And, uh, the realization of that has caused me to go through, yeah, like things that in the past just caused me to spiral and catastrophize because I couldn't handle what was going on. I didn't know why. And I just spiraled until I got crushed now i recognize when that's happening it's okay i have too many sensory inputs going on at the same time or the wrong sensory inputs happening and i need to shut some of those down i need to put on headphones i need to dark room myself i need to do something that minimizes some of those sensory inputs and then the pressure releases a little um i didn't have that ability until i was in my late 20s um it took 28 years to be able to do that uh, if not more than that Um, it you know yeah that being able to just recognize what's going on in the moment and identify it and you know call it out for what it is in your own head um, helps immensely uh, you know and it's again, one of the things that you learn to do in therapy, you know, nobody ever really says what it is you do in therapy. And I would argue that that is one of the biggest things you do in therapy is learn to identify that those things happening to you and then go through that. okay, I understand what's happening to me. I know why this is happening. I know what's going on. That makes it better. (laughs)
1: Like, um, well, if you have realized through this conversation that you love, uh, and left, then there's a few things that you can do. You can, uh, if you're on YouTube, you can like the video. You can uh, catastrophize that subscribe button. <laughs> um, and if you uh, if you would like to spiral all the way down to our <laughs> Patreon page at patreon.com slash raise and left and contribute to us financially, that would be pretty sweet. Uh, uh, if you're on some other platform, I don't know, interact in whatever way makes sense. Uh, I don't know all the things, but we appreciate any, yeah, we (laughs) appreciate any support you throw our way, uh, leave a comment or something, you know,
0: thank you all have a wonderful morning, afternoon, evening, or whatever other time of day it is.
1: Thank you.